Okay, well, <coughs> should we get on with the show? Let's do it. Um, welcome, Wyatt. Thank you for carving out time. Uh, I think from the amount of travel that I picked up you're doing, this is a busy time of year for you. Yeah. And apparently there might be a little event coming up soon, so... Um, <laughs> So, I'll do a very quick intro. Uh, so, you were kind of famous before Turnbull came in in September, because uh, you were the youngest ever uh, Australian MP at mm. 20. Uh, so, there was a seat of Longman, so you're about an hour and a half north of Brisbane. Uh, we won't go into the whole story about that, if you don't want to. Uh, not only were you the youngest uh, MP, but you were the youngest ever front bench minister. Who was the previous youngest? Minister? Yeah. I have no idea. Right. Really? <laughs> no. Okay, so you're, you're 25? Yeah. Right. Oh, no, that's not true. Um, Kate Ellis was at 30. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, so you, by five you years. smashed that record. Well yep. done. Thanks, mate. Um, all right, so and your title is? Assistant Minister for Innovation. Okay, so let's kick off. Could you please define innovation? Sure. Um, well, it is, um, it's a fascinating sort of conversation because I think it's really important that we try and bring it back to something that people can relate to and understand. It's not something that's left out there in the ether. Um, but the way that I define innovation, and I've stolen this from uh, some people, some people actually in the room, uh, is it is the output of a deeply entrepreneurial culture, uh, one that supports people and their ideas, one that embraces risk, one that is tolerant to failure, uh, and uh, effectively supports that new way of of trying new things. So ultimately, if we can permeate that into every aspect of our society and our economy, every business that we have, that's innovation. Okay, and, uh, and in your view, what is the most valuable way that government can support innovation? See, interesting. I mean, as, as a liberal, I'm someone who wants to get government out of our life, right? And, and it's very rare that I actually meet a entrepreneur that says if the government becomes more involved in my business, it's going to be more successful. Like, that almost never happens. Uh, and, I, and I think there's enormous value in actually just getting government out of the way, making sure we tax people less, we regulate them less, so that they have an ability to go out there to thrive, to prosper. Uh, but where we do play a role, I think we should always look at how do we act as an enabler. So how do we draw in some of that private sector support? How do we put a rocket under things that potentially have some opportunity and could be commercialised more quicker? Uh, where we're dealing with um, universities for example, it's really important that we act as that facilitator bringing in the private sector engagement so they commercialise their ideas. So where I look at the role of government, first and foremost, get out of the way. If we're going to do something, uh, the, the first rule should be do no harm. And if we are going to do things, let's act as that enabler or that facilitator between the real world and what we do because governments are rarely these fountains of innovation. Yeah. Okay, and uh, uh, many of us would have seen the Q&A programme you're on on Monday all about innovation. And, you know, to paraphrase almost the, the first question that came out, it's like, fantastic that Turnbull's in, fantastic yeah. that it's the new ideas boom, but where's the beef? Yeah. You know, so we've heard all this talk, you've put posters and bus stops, you've done a whole bunch of other things, but what actually have you done? So we've announced 24 new policies, uh, but the first point that I would make is, this is really important, and, the, and I think for a politician to say this, it's difficult. The Prime Minister makes the point, um, yep, we've announced a whole bunch of new policies, but if we can add to them, we will. Uh, if we can improve them, we will. If they don't work, we'll dump these policies and change them. And David Cameron calls this a global race uh, to, to create an innovation hub globally. And when it comes to our policy settings, we have to keep constantly putting ourselves at the front of that pack and keep tweaking those policy settings. In terms of the 24 policies that we've already announced uh, at the end of last year and working through implementing them, uh, they focus on a few key areas. Uh, so the first area, the most important, the, probably the most difficult to change is the cultural change that we need to see in this country. Uh, so that we embrace more risk, we uh, accept failure, we celebrate success. Uh, and so we, we've announced changes to uh, bankruptcy law, insolvency law, 
new tax incentive to direct funding at uh, more risky endeavours, changing the way that the government does uh, procurement and other things to drive that change. Big changes around attracting capital. So we've announced very big uh, changes to early stage investors. So a 20% tax write-off on the way in, a complete capital gains tax exemption on the way out, uh, which is among some of the most generous tax incentives in the world, uh, which is a big significant start. Changing arrangements for venture capitalists, uh, and also where the government directly plays a role, another $200 million to CSIRO for a venture capital fund to commercialise what they're doing. Uh, so we've made big changes there. We're so making. Can, can we just dig into that one yep, a little bit more? Because sure. that's one that maybe some of us haven't heard around. So that CSIRO, yep. <coughs> I mean, sometimes you hear, you know, it's being slashed and, you know, yep. Larry's got less money, but yep. this $200 million fund, what is it and what is, what's it going to do? Yeah. So, so CSIRO has this great history of doing this incredible research, this amazing science that in many cases has changed the world for the better, but the translation of that research or the commercialization of that research has predominantly been done overseas. So we do all the great research. That's the gold mine that we're sitting on but we're not digging it up in the sense that we're not translating it. So the $200 million uh, is essentially designed as a venture capital fund uh, for CSIRO. People know Larry and his background. Hopefully we'll get a far significant uh, uptick from private sector investment from that $200 million. And that's all about getting that technology or that science to market as soon as possible. We've also given them $18 million as part of the package uh, to radically expand their accelerators. Uh, so again, it's about changing that culture in CSIRO and also ensuring that the private sector is so coming in. Million for CSIRO's accelerators? For CSIRO's accelerators, yeah. Right. But in the scheme of things, these aren't huge numbers. I mean, I think, again, yeah, the program, $18 billion yeah. is Samsung's R&D well, annually. Well, yeah. We're spending $200 million. We are, Well, we already spent $10 billion in this space. Okay. So I think, I think, you know, the billion dollars is the new. Uh, and I've never said that innovation is about how many zeros you add to the end of a government check, and that's not innovation. Uh, and we're only a country of 23 million people, so the idea that we're just going to have innovation by just spending more taxpayers' money I think is ridiculous. Where we are going to see the big uptick is when we attract that private sector capital, when we get that private sector involvement uh, into our ecosystem. Israel, which is held up as by far the best uh, across the world, uh, their commercialisation funds are $400 million a year and ours is $10 billion. And their commercialisation fund is going down in terms of taxpayer expenditure, but private sector investment is ticking up. Um, so $10 billion already out there, another billion dollars in this space, but it's not about the money we're spending, it's about the change that we want to see in terms of driving that private sector involvement, changing that cultural approach that we want to see and, and helping things, which are great uh, research or great ideas, get to market. And, you know, it's not about just throwing yeah. cash at it. Because yeah. clearly we've we spent money. We spent $10 billion, and we, we're not a world leader in innovation. Yeah. So it's, it's about a new way of doing business, not just more cash. Yeah, and I, I mean, I actually saw some of the uh, companies coming out, the CSIRO Accelerator last year, and they're really yeah, good and absolutely. pretty exciting. And it's not just around software hardware. I mean, there was one that was doing a better way of producing graphene, you know, the yeah. one-layer-thick graphic uh, yeah. or uh, carbon things, lots of applications apparently, but yeah. very different to what many of us think about in here. Yeah, I just, I just make one quick point yep. on that too. Like, just to give you an example, yep, a billion dollars on this, but we are awash with capital generally when we're talking about it. So there's $2 trillion in superannuation, billions of dollars invested into um, into infrastructure, into resources, into property, and yet only a few years ago, uh, we bet $200 million on the Melbourne Cup and only invested $100 million through venture capital in that same year. Um, so clearly, if we can unlock that huge pool of capital, both Australian and global, that's where we're going to see a big uptick. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just jump ahead to, to that question I was going to ask. So, I mean, there's been about a billion dollars of new venture money, good venture money yeah. has come into the market really in the last two years uh, since I've yeah. um, been pretty actively involved. And that's really up from a base of about 300 million. Yeah. Not much of that has been put to use. So uh, how 
impactful do you think that's going to be? And again, going back to that question, you know, uh, what has government done to support that? And you know, why is it yeah. not a matching fund? And you know, yeah. So I am, um, I'm actually quite optimistic about the change that we're going to see in this space. So in the last year, we've seen four or five funds raise two hundred million dollars. The exciting thing for me about that is they have, they all have institutional backing. So they all have super investing in there, which was that big two trillion dollars. Uh, pool that we've seen. Um, depending on who you talk to, they'll have different arguments about why we haven't seen more of this. I think one, as our... Uh, I think they lost all their money like yep. 10, 15 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, but there was a bad experience yep. uh, a few years ago. I think, I, I think as the ecosystem matures and we begin to see more success, we'll see more money uh, flowing. Uh, to be honest, some of the skill sets that it come, when it comes to deploying this capital uh, is probably the more difficult thing than actually getting the capital in the first place. And I, I was talking to Sequoia recently and they made the point that it costs $200 million to change a venture capitalist to the point that they actually know how to properly deploy this. And I think as the ecosystem matures, more of that money comes in, we see more success, there is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I think particularly with super money going into VC, uh, as we begin to see that success, more will begin to run at it. Predominantly in the past, this has been too small of a sort of investment for them to do. They haven't been as excited about uh, where we're beginning to see that shift. And I think particularly with super funds that have younger members, you know, if you're my age and you've been paying compulsory super since you're, you know, 15 in your first job, you actually are quite keen to have a higher risk appetite much sooner, which is very different to someone who's about to hit retirement after paying compulsory super since 1993. Um, and so when I'm talking to the funds that particularly have those younger members, they are very keen. Well, I was talking to one the other day who wants to put $500 million over the next four years into this space. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to see a really big uptick as we begin to see that success. And I think we'll also see more foreign VC. Yeah. You know, I was talking to the, um, uh, the American ambassador the other day, uh, who's holding a whole round, of, a whole series of sort of roundtables with American VCs coming out here, uh, and I put the question to him: Why haven't we seen more of this? And uh, you know, I said, is it a deal flow issue? Is it you know all the arguments that we put up? And he said, no, it's just simply awareness. And when you actually physically get people in front of what we're doing here, they actually get very excited about it, are keen to invest. And the more that we can do that, the more that we talk about it, the better it is. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about the fintech trend mm -hmm. um, laterally, but yeah. I mean, I think there are startups going on. So I mean, Dan's launched a startup around disrupting superannuation. So I mean, there's definitely yeah. some. Are you going to be investing in high risk <laughs> startups, Dan? Yeah, good. good. All right, thank you. I should, I should make the point too, we should mandate this as well. You know, the government can't mandate this. Well, they could, but I, I think that's ridiculous. But, you know, we can help facilitate it yeah. and we can celebrate but, it. I mean, part of the challenge with this sector is, you know, it's three to five to seven yeah. years, really, until you start seeing returns from it. Right. And trying to get cash out of the sector is pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, and we're not seeing that yet. So even that money that's come in the last two years is still being put to work. So it's, been a, it's going to be a while. Um, so why don't we change tech a little bit and talk, uh, talk about you. Um, and your experience. Mm. Uh, I mean, so when I was 25, yeah, uh, I wasn't. That was a long time ago. Yeah. What done with my life? Yeah. Um, I wasn't a minister. Uh, yeah. I was in Scotland, uh, and it might be because it's a Scottish thing, but I was trying to get drunk and trying to uh, get with the ladies. Um, I like how you use trying on both of those yeah, things. Well, like, I, I, I actually met my wife was here when I was 25, so she saved me from a career of uh, womanizing. Um, <laughs> so how do you balance a career yeah. in the public eye? Because you obviously can't go out and get drunk well, and misbehave with, with yeah. trying to be 25. It, it's interesting. When you take the suit off, people don't recognize you as much. And, and I've always said, like, I love this job. I think I'm good at it. I enjoy it. 
but it's not the end of the world. You know, it's not. I, I hate people who view politics as a career. Um, and I think if you have that sort of zen about it, then who really cares if I'm out getting drunk with my mates on a Friday or a Saturday night? That doesn't actually affect my job. Um, and, you know, there's a difference between waking up drunk in a gutter and having a good time with your mates. And if you can't find that balance, politics probably isn't the career for you. Um, <laughs> and, or nor is, you know, I've got mates in the military that can't go out, you know, do the same sorts of things. Uh, so I think that you've got to have a bit of perspective. But I'm really lucky. My best mates are not interested in politics at all. Um, they think this is completely hilarious, uh, what I do. Uh, and they've kind of, because I've been doing this since I was 20, we've kind of grown up with me doing it. And like anything in life, I put effort into my job. I've got to put effort into having a normal life and seeing my mates and but, but doing sure, normal things. But, OK, so I mean, this is the nub of the question. I mean, yeah. uh, the challenge for you is you haven't done anything else. Yeah. So you're in a portfolio that involves, you know, yeah. all of us in this room are kind of old, older than you, I think. Um, yeah. In fact, I met someone who's 24, so you're, yeah. not, you're not the youngest. Uh, but it's hard because you haven't done this. So, yeah. I mean, should you not go and do an internship or a sabbatical or something <laughs> to... Yeah, why not? Just give it a go. Are you giving me a job? We could... Yeah, sure. Got... I'm sure we could uh, help them yeah. out. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but the point about um, politics particularly, I think, is you have... Uh, we are better served when we have diversity in, yeah. in it, right? And that doesn't matter whether that's age or professional background or whatever. If, you know, if you said that, well, the only person that could ever be a minister is someone who's been a lawyer for 30 years or been a union rep for 30 years. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, how is that going to better serve the country? And you can't shrink that gene pool. I think the trick with me in terms of my age is the worst people in this job, because it is so unique, you're dealing with so many different things, are the ones that walk in and say, well, I'm the smartest person in the room, therefore you should all believe me and whatever I say goes. Politicians, effective politicians, or, or certainly ministers, are not like that. They're facilitators. So they bring together the smartest people. They uh, bring together the people that know what they're talking about, and they, um, you know, formulate policy by actually listening rather than talking. Yeah. And I think if you take that approach, it's very grounding. And the other reality is, I don't do this by myself. Yeah. You know, no one could say that Malcolm doesn't have an interest in innovation. You know, he is deeply involved in this policy space. And I think that um, when well, you balance in, yourself... Yeah, entrepreneur, and yeah, yeah. banker, but you, lawyer. But you, you have to balance yourself with your colleagues. Uh, and he, lo he loves teasing me because when he was... Um, and he was my age. He was doing incredible... Like, he wasn't in Parliament, but he was... You, know, you look at his career. He had the Spycatcher case. He had, um, uh, you know, the Republican movement, the ISP. He's, he's done all these yeah. things. And he loves teasing me. He says when he was my age, he was this young guy sitting in a room wondering why all these old people are listening to him. And now he's this old dude sitting in a room wondering why all these young people listening to him right. uh, and you kind of you kind of go through that transition so you just have to be realistic about it yeah okay uh, fintech yeah let's talk about that so uh, I mean I was up at stone and chalk so most of us will know that because mm -hmm. uh, I think quite a few of the companies in here have helped fund it uh, you've been up there a few times yep. I'm sure uh, so Scott Morrison who's not your boss but you know he's a treasurer so it's mm -hmm. kind of important uh, he was up there talking about the national innovation and science agenda so uh, you know, so fintech is a focus. Now, I can't work out whether it, the, the government is jumping on the fintech bandwagon or whether it was fintech was here first, but that verticalization of, uh, of startups and the, the trend around that, I mean, do you want to just touch on that and why the government yeah. thinks fintech is a good horse to back? Look, I, I think that there's, um, we have enormous competitive advantages in this space. We already have good things happening. So I do think there is a bit of a case that it was kind of here and the government's effectively saying, well, how can we supercharge this or take this further? Or as I said before, do no harm. 
Uh, I think when we look at our time zone, where we are in the world, you look at what Stone & Chalk's doing in our north, where a billion people are coming into the middle class, increasingly going to want to buy those services, not just our food and fibre and resources. Clearly strong advantages there. We have a well-regulated financial system here that gives us a sense of security that helps us. So there's all those strong foundations. In terms of what we're trying to do in the fintech space, um, it's, a, it's kind of a frustrating period for me because we've announced a, a fintech advisory board, which uh, Malcolm, Scott, Christopher Pine, myself, and Kelly O'Dwyer sit on. Uh, they provided some really strong uh, policy recommendations in this space. Uh, and all I would say is we are very keen. I was talking to the Treasurer about this yesterday. Uh, we are very keen to adopt a lot of those recommendations. Well, to look at these recommendations yeah. and potentially... Is this the one that Dan Petrie and yes. Scott, yep. Paul Bassett? Yeah, yep. all, those, all those guys are on it, uh, which really looks at specifically the fintech space. Um, you know, they've proposed things like a regulatory sandbox, which I think, you know, has a lot of merit, uh, and a number of other initiatives, changes to government procurement, which we're already doing. Um, so there are a number of sort of things here that I think we can do to help supercharge. It's interesting. I just came from a meeting with the, um, the UK uh, uh, Minister of State for Innovation, a small business uh, in, um, in the UK, and they've obviously sort of been held up as sort of the world leaders in this space, done a few things, and you could see the frustration on his space as well, saying we've got to do more in this space, we've got to do more policy yeah. settings, and, and we were sort of swapping notes and ideas, so we're very keen to do a lot more here. Yeah, I've even got a quote from the UK government. They said uh, they want to provide unrivaled international connectivity, a regulatory environment that balances risk and innovation to yeah. foster and maintain the optimal conditions for growing business. Should you not just copy that? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> we'll just quite white Roy 2016. <laughs> yeah, but, I, mean, I mean, that's a motherhood statement, but yeah, absolutely. But is, I mean, it, that's, is it competitive? But, I mean, like, do you see, like, do well, you meet but, that guy and you, you sort of want to um, win the businesses off there? I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, the UK, you know, because we're culturally aligned, it's a great sort of partner. I mean, of course, we're competing with them, but also, you know, the world is a big enough place that if we adopt global best practice and keep tweaking it a little bit, I think that we can both benefit from that. A lot of Australians doing business in London at the moment as well, so there's no, you know, there's no huge disadvantage in Australians going there and coming back because you get access to market and capital and all the rest. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so I think it's reasonable to swap ideas and, and, you know, frankly, we stole some of their ideas from the National Innovation and Science Agenda. Yeah, and no, I think they're doing a good yeah. job over there. If it works, why wouldn't you take yeah, it? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I actually did, uh, I missed a question from the previous section. So what would you be doing if you weren't a politician? So what is your <laughs> career beyond politics? I don't know. Well, politics radically changes everything. I, um, uh, so I, I'm the first person in my family to finish high school, including yeah. two older brothers. My family are... Um, are farmers and yep. uh, you know done that so I don't know maybe there but I very much doubt that uh, I was studying international relations and national security and intelligence and I, I would have loved a career in that path but I don't think they employ former politicians yeah. uh, so so that that career path is now gone um, I, I don't know we'll, we'll see yeah. so, but is there a, incredibly a path from politics to the corporate sector Absolutely. back to politics why would you want to come back to politics? I don't know. Yeah. Why would you want to go in there? I mean, yeah, I mean, but like, you know, this goes back to my point too. I don't, I don't, I think if you treat this job as a career, right, like, let's be really honest. If you treat this job as a career, uh, your whole focus is on how do I get reelected? And that makes you completely and utterly risk adverse. Yeah. Uh, which means you will do absolutely nothing. Where if you have a lot more zen and you say, um, I'm coming into this role to try and do something good. I've got a view about what I think we can, you know, what the country can be and where it's going and how we can change the country. I want to do that. And then I can go on and, you know, do something else in my life. I think that's a much healthier approach to this. Um, because it means you would actually, 
Thank you. Because I think it means you actually do something. And, you, and you, you know, this is a job where every person you meet is a job interview. You're faced with your mortality every day. Every three years you reapply, and often less, you reapply for the same job. So I'd, I'd like to see politicians or a political class that actually want to do something rather than do nothing, which is politically very popular to do nothing, because you don't, you know, you win elections if you do nothing. Um, uh, so so I, I just take a very different view about this and have a lot of zen about it. And, and I think partly it's a generational thing. Yeah. You know, the demands on politicians now, and I'm not asking for sympathy, we're never going to get it, but the demands are huge. You know, you, the way that we're connected to people, the expectations are through the roof, the way the media environment has changed in the last five or ten years is unbelievable. And I, I have this theory, it might be wrong, but I really think that in the next generation of politicians you're going to see a much higher burnout rate. You know, yep. you're going to see heaps of them get out. If you look at, we were talking about this before, for people my age and younger, People like FYA um, predict that they'll have eight careers in the course of their lifetime. I love it. I think I'm good. I enjoy it. I could happily do something else as well. So uh, just let's finish the politics theme. So yep. um, state politics. So yep. tomorrow night I'm down in uh, yep. Melbourne With interviewing Philip, Philip Deladakis. Yes. Uh, you know, so where, where does his remit for, I mean, because he feels like he's got an open checkbook trying to yeah. wave it in front of startups and overseas companies to, yeah. to launch in Melbourne. So where does his remit stop and yours begin? And yeah. Why is being a federal uh, MP better than a state MP? Yeah. Uh, well, lots of reasons, but but I, I think um, I, I think from the Commonwealth perspective, it's our job to create the framework, right? So we've got the really big policy levers to put play. So we've got taxation, we've got immigration. We can't go into the delivery side of education, but we can talk at the at the higher level. Uh, when it comes to education. So I think we can create the key elements within the ecosystem. And then when it comes to the states, and I have this uh, discussion with my state counterparts all the time, and Philip is fantastic in this space because he is aggressively parochial, as you were sort of saying, and that's what the state should be. Because if you look at around the world where real innovations uh, hubs have happened and where government policy has really helped predominantly, it's actually been state governments and local governments that have delivered that because they have policy levers in terms of planning law, in terms of physically being able to fund and build things where the Commonwealth government just really can't do that. And, and my uh, request to the states is that they compete. You know, I want Melbourne to do absolutely everything in its power to be a, a hub of innovation in this country and to beat New South Wales and to beat Queensland, and they should all compete with each other because while we can create the innovation framework and we say, yep, we want to go this place as a country, if they're competing at that level and doing whatever it takes to get change happening, I think that is a far healthier approach than saying if we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, we actually don't ever do anything. And you want them to be, in that space, aggressive with each other, and Philip is very aggressive with the others, and good on him okay. for doing that. All right, so let's keep in the theme of large-scale yep. infrastructure investment. Yep. Uh, and you probably know where I'm going with this. So I, I live in a nice apartment yep. that was built three years ago in Bondi Junction. Yep. The only option I have for my internet connectivity is ADSL. Yeah. So there's no cable, yep. no fiber, uh, which is bizarre. Yep. Uh, and it works 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning. It's really good. Good. Uh, <laughs> but do you the, wind something up to make it work? No, it's like you? in the evening when you're trying to watch Netflix or the yep. kids are playing the, uh, <coughs> stupid games. Uh, it's really not very good. So, yeah. uh, you know, and we heard, you know, the audience on, mm. on Monday at Q&A, there was a palpable, you know, yeah. anger slash sure. excitement slash yeah. um, uh, irritation that, you know, the internet here is, is not good enough. It's yeah. not keeping up with where we are. Uh, it's gone from 30th place in the world to 60th. You know, so it feels like the NBN became, you know, it was this sort of weird haphazard, yeah. uh, you know, gestation period from Conroy and Rudd. Uh, you know, your boss grabbed it. Did some stuff with it, changed the uh, FTTP yep. uh, premises to you know node to premises. 
what is going on? Like, what, why can't yeah. we fix this and, and get better internet? Well, because of the two things that slow down everything in life, time and money. So if time and money mean nothing, then we'd all have the best internet, it would have been free and we would have had it yesterday. With 23 million people in a large population. And, and the point that I was trying to make the other night is my concern is, you know, it's interesting you saying in Bondi Junction you have such bad internet. Um, but under the old rollout model, it was, it was done on politics, right? So it was effectively done on electorates. And we had situations where you had people with pretty good internet connections, had the MBN rolled out next to them, getting even better internet connections. In areas, and I mentioned this on the show the other night, like in my own electorate, 45 minutes north of Brisbane have dial-up speed. Uh, and when we came in, we did a strategic review and it said under the old rollout model, which was very expensive and going to take a long time, the rollout wouldn't have been completed until 2024. So you're saying to people, you know, millions of addresses that have dial-up speed or ADSL1 speed, uh, do you mind just waiting five, six, seven, eight years and then you can have this great internet? Uh, and that excludes an enormous amount of this population from all the stuff that we're talking about trying to do. So in terms of our rollout model, I mean, the key focus is that we are getting a high quality level of internet as quickly as possible to people who have some of the worst internet speeds in the world. Uh, this morning, just on my own Facebook page, a guy sent me a message locally who until, so for the community locally that I'm talking about, we were able to bring that forward by about six years, right? And he was a few weeks ago on uh, very low ADSL speed, and he's now getting 107 megabits down, right. uh, which is FTTN. He's getting 107 megabits down, FTTN. Now, that's great. He can now fully participate in everything. Now, do I want him to have a gig speed down? Yeah, sure. But he's now included in this, and under the old model, <coughs> he would have had to have waited until right. possibly 2024. Uh, I don't think that's a fair and equitable thing. Now, if we went back and redesigned the whole thing from scratch, there's no way that you would say we're going to create a government monopoly that would roll out high-speed internet to every corner of the country. The government would have a role, but predominantly you would have highly engaged private sector providers. An example that I used on the show the other night, I was in um, southwest WA, literally in the middle of nowhere, and they're getting a gigabyte download speed. A private provider had rolled out the fibre for a fraction of the cost that MBN Co would have done it, uh, and, um, and they're getting a gig download speed. Uh, creating anime movies, sending them to China. So we can't reinvent history on this, but we've got to deal with what right. we were given. But ultimately, it's going to be a policy um, differentiator between you and Well, and but, but the because, rhetoric and reality know. is the difference as well. I mean, and Ed made this point on the show the other night. I mean, they promised everyone was going to get this incredible internet really quickly, really cheaply, and that's not the reality. It took them four years to pass 100,000 premises. We did that in four months. But opposition's easy because they can just... Yeah, of course, you can just say, say whatever hey, you want to say. You're going to get more fibre more yeah. quickly with us. And, and expectations on this is where both sides of politics, regardless of their policy, will have to uh, really manage this. I mean, you can't say everyone's going to get this and then take three to four years to pass 100,000 homes in a country of 23 million people. Yeah. Uh, and saying, and when you actually say to people 2024 for a finish date, it kind of changes their perception on this. So the key thing that we actually did among, you know, changing the board and putting people with telecommunications experience actually doing this um, was we did the, my broadband review. So the first time ever we conducted a review which actually looked at where is internet availability in this country. And we gave that to MBNCO and said, service these underserviced areas first. And this is the point that I was trying to make. It's very easy when you're in Sydney or Melbourne, you know, inner city Sydney or Melbourne, getting great internet, getting even better internet, but other people are excluded from that. That's the change, the rollout model that I wanted to see. Yeah. Okay, so look, I've got three or four sort of macro themes that we want to get through, and then we are going to throw to, to the audience for questions, so in about five or ten minutes. 
Um, so education, so one of the criticisms I heard on uh, as a yeah. lack of debate on Monday was around education. <coughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there was lots of buzzwords around, you know, incubators and startups and yeah. incentives, but, you know, nobody was really digging into, if you, without uh, educated, an educated workforce yeah, and, and, and women also energized within that, within maths and, and, yeah. and science subjects, then we're never going to get innovation. No, absolutely. So and I, and I can you redress that lack of yeah. uh, discussion and just tell us about well, education? In terms of addressing it, you should take it up with Tony Jones. Um, because I, would have, I, I did say to him, let's have this big conversation. I'm, I'm interviewing for his job. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You've done better than him today. So oh, that's right. good. Yeah, you can go over it. Um, it, It's vitally important. Um, you, you know, I, I said before, if you look at FYA, they say that for people my age, we have eight careers in the course of our lifetime. They also say that 60% uh, of the jobs that young people will go into don't yet exist because of technology disruption. So it is incredibly important that we are giving young Australians this strong foundation in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, digital technology and entrepreneurial skill sets. And we started having this conversation the other night, and particularly women. Right. You know, one of the figures that I saw the other day, which terrified me, was uh, of funded startups in this country, 6% are female. Now, that's improving slowly, but you can't say as a country that that's anywhere near good enough. Uh, and so we've done a few things. We've made, uh, because of course, this goes back to my point before, the implementation is done by the states, but, so we need to look at where we can come in and, and play a role. And we've created three funds under the Innovation and Science Agenda, which effectively put a rocket under programs that are working. So rather than saying, let's go back to the States and find a, you know, create a whole new bureaucracy to somehow try and upskill a, a teacher who means well but has no actual means of teaching STEM or digital tech or entrepreneurial skill sets, we've said there are NGOs who do great work in this space. Google upskills 200 teachers uh, a year. Intel's doing great things, all these great providers. We can come in through these three funds that we've announced and put a rocket under them and help actually get these programs out there. We've also carved out one particular fund for inspiring women and girls to go into STEM, digital tech, and entrepreneurial skill sets. And in terms of the culture that gets laid on top of this, it's really important we make this sexy and exciting. Yeah. You know, you, you have to have a situation where a young girl or a young Australian says, I want to be a cool rock star founder or a cool uh, scientist. Uh, and that comes down to how we deal with the media, what we talk about publicly, how we celebrate success, and everywhere that we're going, we have to keep championing these great success stories that we have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, because the whole process is still incredibly formalised. I mean, yeah. you go to school and here's how to do, yeah. get you know, good exam results, and here's how to go to a good uni, and here's how to get a job at yeah. Macquarie, um, or wherever the, the best employers are. But to become an entrepreneur is hard. It's almost Absolutely. like you need a course called How to Get Shit Done. Yeah, exactly. And you, you've got to make it, like, exciting for people. And, and part of this problem that we have is the tall poppies syndrome that we have in this country. We've got to get rid of that. If you attack people for being successful, it's not really easy to inspire people to try and be like that. Yeah. All right, well, let me ask one more uh, question and then we'll, we'll, we'll throw it open to the floor. So the Aussies in Silicon Valley and the whole, you yeah. know, what's perceived as the brain drain from here, and, you know, really it's been over the last few years. And, yeah. you know, you look at the best accelerators like Startmate, you know, they've kind of got this almost conveyor belt to get people through to Silicon yeah. Valley and almost, you know, go overseas and, and make, make money there. Uh, so, I mean, you have spent some time over there. You've met a chunk of these guys. So be interested in your perspective on that. And then I actually want to uh, pick and... James has just come back because we had a chat the other day on this one. Yeah. Um, so can you give us your perspective on, yep. on the brain drain or lack yep. of and what's going to happen? Well, the first point is I want people to go. Like, let's, let's be really clear about this. You want circulation through global innovation hubs. But you only you want to go if they come back. Sure. Well, but also you can actually scale a business in more than one country okay. at a time, right? 
And, and so part of this realisation is that we are not a marketplace of 23 million people. Because if you say success is only a business that sells to 23 million people, that's ridiculous. Um, and we have this incredible beachhead to the globe, and particularly in Asia where there's a billion people coming into the middle class. If we get some of the policy settings right here, I am deeply optimistic that we can, um, we, we can effectively keep people here or have their businesses grow. The example I used the other night was Sam from Nitro, you know, which is a huge growth tech startup competitor to Adobe. Um, he was from Melbourne, went to Silicon Valley in Dublin. He said the other, other day in the Fin review of the, the NISA changes that we had and the tax changes that we had were in effect, he probably wouldn't have gone. So I think that shows that we can actually achieve something in this space, but we want that circulation. So what, you know, one of the things that we've done is we've set up these landing pads, which are co-location facilities with incubators or accelerators. The one in San Francisco is with Rocket Space, which um, was the incubator that housed uh, Uber and Spotify. Okay. So really high-end stuff. We'll put through as many companies as possible um, for six-month period to, or three-month period in that case um, to do an acceleration program. Uh, we'll have trade missions going through them. We'll utilise that expat Aussie entrepreneur network. And it's a good thing. People get access to markets, access to capital, access to talents. Um, but then ultimately, if we get the policy settings right here, then we can continue to grow the businesses because from here, you can grow and scale to the globe. And increasingly over decades to come, if we look at uh, companies scaling into Asia, here is going to be a very, very good place to do that because of the access that we have, the transformative free trade agreements that we have. And, um, yeah. you know, Seek's a great example. You know, Seek's an Australian business, but their China business is way bigger, but yeah. they're here. I think the other theme you mentioned, which, you know, I speak from experience here, if, if you marry an Australian, yes. you will end up in Australia. Yeah. Or if you are Australian and you have, I mean, well, actually, given the choice between Glasgow and Sydney, it was yeah. kind of an easy choice. Yeah, yeah. But this is the other point, is, you know, on all these policy settings, we, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to have a lower tax rate in Singapore, right? But we have to get a little bit closer. And if we get those policy settings close enough, we are, a li like Julie Bishop constantly says this, we are a lifestyle superpower. And if you have a choice between living, you know, in Bondi Junction or Tel Aviv or San Francisco or Singapore or Hong Kong, you're always going to pick here because of that. And I, I think we've treated our lifestyle as a novelty, but if we actually celebrate it and we, we sell it to the rest of the world and we bring those other policy settings into line, maybe not all the way, but as close as we can get, then I actually think that you will see an enormous amount come back. And as I made the point, talking to all the expat Aussie entrepreneurs the other day, very, very successful expat Aussie entrepreneurs all wanted to stay there. The moment that they had to ha have kids, I would never send them to a school in San Fran. They'll get shot in the face, you know, da 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 da. We want them to come back to Australia, and I think there is a point there that that is that we should be playing to. And at that point, they've got companies, they've scaled, they've got access to capital, they've got great talent. Great, James. Do you want to like make a comment on this, or I mean, you 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 are a successful Aussie founder who's just come home, like, and we had a pretty long conversation Monday night about this. Like, there's a microphone right behind you. I mean, do you want to uh, comment on your 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 thought process and what you found when you've been home? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's very loud. Sorry. Um, um, you, do, you do fear that your children get shot in the face, so that's, yeah. like, that's, that's accurate. Um, first of all, th thanks for having me, Ian and, and Wyatt. You, you're, you're very impressive, and I think you know, a lot of your thoughts are, are really good, and I think the direction of, of your plan is right. I, I don't necessarily think it'll be successful, but I think it's right. Um, <laughs> thanks, mate. So, um, you know, I, I think just a, a couple of thoughts, maybe. 
Um, my, my background, yeah, I, I left Australia about eight years ago. Uh, I've, I've been involved in two companies. The first one was uh, both consumer internet. The first one was called Facebook Causes, uh, the biggest non-gaming Facebook app. The last one was a company called uh, Brigade. Is a company called Brigade, which I'm still involved in. It's one of its co-founders. Um, interestingly, it's involved in um, politics and technology. So I think I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying about the, the churn of politicians and the short sh shelf life they'll have. Um, I guess for me, when I think about my experiences in Silicon Valley, the, the big thing that um, I think is different to maybe some of the discourse I've read, um, putting aside the scale, because I generally agree with some of the criticisms around the scale of the program, but we don't need to dig into that. I think that's already mm -hmm. been discussed enough. I think the bigger problem I have with, with the program is that it feels very prescriptive and deterministic, and that's just not how startups work. Yeah. Um, the reality is that the vast majority of startups fail, and the reality is that the vast majority of entrepreneurs never want to be an entrepreneur. I used to be a lawyer. The only reason I got into um, you know, entrepreneurship in the first place was because of the financial crisis. I couldn't get a job as a lawyer to pay off my um, student debts. And I happened to meet a great Silicon Valley founder in Sean Parker, and, and he invited me into a junior role at one of his companies, and that was you know, seven years ago. So I think, I guess, the challenge for the program is how do we come up with an initiative that is less prescriptive, less deterministic, but massive in scale? Um, the, the, the cultural piece of it, totally agree with. Sorry, I'm waxing lyrically. I'll wrap up. But um, the cultural piece, I totally agree with. I think that's actually the biggest hurdle for this country to overcome. Um, however, I don't think we're going to overcome it with tax initiatives. I don't think we're going to overcome it by increasing the supply side of capital. I, I don't think there's a shortage of capital in this country, by the way. Right. I really don't. Like, um, you know, I've been involved with Tankstream Ventures, a terrific venture firm. Jonathan is over here, one of, one of the partners. So I've seen a ton of companies in the last two and a half years. And there's probably only been maybe a quarter of a billion to work with, realistically, within, within Sydney. Maybe that's 4x, 5x, 10x. I don't think it's going to be able to get spent. So I don't think the problem is on the supply side. I think the problem it comes down to the types of entrepreneurs and the companies that they're starting. So very long way around, I want to ask, talk about, well, ask you about immigration. Yes. Yep. Um, so $87 billion companies in the US, unicorns, however you want to call them, um, half of them are founded by immigrants. Peter Thiel and, and PayPal, Garrett Camp with Uber, um, Elon Musk with three or four companies he started. Um, it feels to me like the government's approach to immigration is very prescriptive. You've announced the entrepreneur visa, which I think won't work because it implies that people have a great idea for a company and then you're going to vet them at the border on what their idea is and then let them into the country which is just not going to work. The reality is that great entrepreneurs come to a country usually because of the education and the lifestyle. I agree with you on the lifestyle. But it's, it's not deterministic or linear. So how do we attract, how do we build up our universities, which I didn't really feel was covered in the plan or is covered in the plan, so that it is a world-class hub of technical training? And then secondly, how do we reform and open up our immigration policy so that we don't ask a you know, a quiz question at the border about their idea yeah. because they probably don't have their idea yet. Yeah, yeah. We just need smart people who are well-educated who want to stay here. So yeah, that right. would be a... a yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's a very, very good point. And um, we, we should be completely shameless about this, right? We, we should just say we want to attract the best and brightest from across the globe and we'll do whatever it takes to get them here effectively. Now, politically, that's often very hard. Because the argument, politically, I think it's wrong, but this is the argument that we put up against. People will say, well, they're coming to take our jobs, not to add to the jobs, not to grow the economy. And, you know, when you play with the immigration system, there is a very strong rebuttal to this 
You only have to look at like union campaigns recently where they say anyone who comes to this country is stealing our jobs. And that, that is exactly what people say in this space. Um, we, have, we have announced the change on the entrepreneur visa side. Uh, we've also announced changes where people with the right skill sets, so the digital tech, so forget the entrepreneur, but the people that would be involved in the company, we want to make it as easy as possible for them to come in and work here. And we've kind of already done that in other professions, you know, where there's skill shortages in certain professions. We say, yep, we'll help them come in. We're prioritising digital technology skill sets and those STEM skill sets to help streamline that process. Um, the other thing that we're doing, and this is like, it blows my mind that we didn't do this before. Education is the country's second biggest export. So it's like coal and iron ore and education are all up there at the top. Uh, you only have to go to any university to see that. An incredible resource for our country. But our immigration system, until the National Innovation and Science Agenda, said, please come to our country, please study, you know, use our institutions that we put all this money into, and the moment you graduate, do you mind just going home? It's crazy. So we've, we've said if you want to be involved in a business or a startup or, or, you know, contribute to the economy after that point, then we'll extend those visas, which I think is, again, a very practical way of doing this. I do think this is an area... Yeah. Exactly. Does that look like so? Because this is oh sorry, this is actually I think a yeah. massive opportunity for, in terms of comparative advantage yeah. for the U.S. Because there it is true. You go, you, yeah. you get your, your degree, and it's really really hard to stick around. And they've yeah. been trying to reform this for years, and they're not going to do it, particularly if our friend Mr. Trump wins. Yeah. So how, what does it look like if I come and get a degree? How long can I stay? What are the limitations? What sorts yeah, of things sure. can I do? So so a Trump presidency might be the best thing for Australian innovation. That'd be wonderful. We'll yeah. uh, let's we crush it. Uh, um, but but um, uh, we're actually consulting on this currently. So if you have views on this, um, I'd love, and anyone else in the room, please let me know and I can help you become involved. And part of the reason is that we're broadly consulting is because exactly your point is how we define this matters. Um, and we found that with our tax changes as well. You know, we had, a, we had a really strong consultation period because how do you define an Australian innovation? That matters. So to be honest, it's a little bit open at the moment, um, but we want to address those issues. I also think when I say there's more that we can do, absolutely there's more that we can do. Um, in the US, you have this exceptional talent visa. You would have seen... Um, I love the idea of that. I think there are, because it deals with the issues that you're talking about. It's more flexible, it, you know, it's more, it's easier to do. I think with immigration, there are two issues. There is the guy at the border and, you know, the, the actual black and white requirements of it. But the other big issue is the processing times that go with this. You know, I can't tell you the amount of founders that talk to me and they get frustrated, not so much that, you know, they can't get the talent in under the current immigration system. They can, but it's hugely bureaucratic. It takes way too long, and it's just easier to do that in another country. So I think there are two, two issues. The black and white letter of the law when it comes to immigration, which we are changing but can change further, and the processing time, which is a massive issue. And you want to make those, and that's why I like the exceptional talent visa, not just because it's loose, but because it's quick. Okay. Um, yeah. That was a great topic. Thank you. Um, so more, let's, uh, I want to make sure we've got time for some more questions. So who else has got a question? And I know there are some questions. Ah, yes, here we go, young lady. Hi. Um, hey. Firstly, I'm very impressed by what you've done. Um, my name is Sarah Beckwith, and I'm one of the co-founders at Doctors, which is a platform um, for connecting people to doctors. Um, there's just a couple of things that you said that I think are really important and relevant to healthcare. Yeah. Um, so firstly, cultural change being key to the success. Um, secondly, when you mentioned if it works, for example, in the UK, why wouldn't we do it here? Um, so you can see with Lloyd's online doctor who have had the exact same business model that we have. They've been doing it for over a decade. They've done over a million consultations. But the difference is that they have support um, behind them from private sectors 
and also from the NHS and other parties. Mm. So I'm in this position now where um, we were the first launch in Australia. We've got a proven model. We've been running. We're very focused on what we do. It's chronic conditions, simple script repeats, the contraceptive pill, asthma. Um, we deliver Australia-wide, but... In terms of getting private sector on board, people who would benefit out of it, whether it's pharmacy, uh, travel insurers, health insurers, yeah. um, the, the list goes on. No one wants to be the first mover and they sort of uh, hold back and wait for someone else. So we've closed our first... Uh, uh, sorry, can we run to the question? I'm just making yeah, so sure... The question is, can you please help me get some key stakeholders... Um, on board with healthcare because yeah. at the moment it's 10% of the GDP and yeah, it's sure. growing as crazy. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, excellent. Um, uh, yes is the short answer. I'll do whatever I can. I have to tell you, this shows you how ridiculous we are uh, when it comes to government and the rest. So, so a little while ago I had a tech startup that, um, very successful, provides services for uh, education in universities for students, right? Radically changing that. And um, they put the same question to me. And so I wrote to all the vice chancellors in the country and said, um, I don't endorse companies. I can't do that as a politician, but this is a great Australian innovation, a product that was previously being purchased by overseas. Um, and here's their information. Have a look at it. If you pick up today's Australian and you open it up, there's a very nasty uh, VC saying, isn't it terrible that a politician is supporting a private company? And they've basically done this hatchet job sort of, you know, story saying, how dare they try and help people by introducing them to each other. So we have to be careful about how we do this. I think that's a ridiculous sort of uh, response, but as long as you're happy to have your business in the Australian, uh, we <laughs> then I can be very forthright. Um, I, I would um, I, I would, uh, I would suggest a couple of things, and, and um, I think in your particular case, we can also look at the primary healthcare networks and their networking abilities and all the rest of it. So we'll have that chat offline. More generally, we are very keen wherever the government is involved, and healthcare is a great example because we're involved deeply, uh, to make the procurement processes as easy as possible. And we're radically changing those procurement processes through a few ways. So we announced the digital marketplace uh, last week, uh, which was part of the National Innovation and Science Agenda, which essentially connects the IT service providers in all the government departments with startups and SMEs who can provide them and making that as simple and clean as possible. We also need to change the procurement process where we have a very high bar that people have to jump across to even get in there. And if instead we have a proof of concept phase, help people through that, and then we can circumvent uh, some of the other processes that we have. And I kind of call this the reverse pitch. So um, the great example is uh, startups are very good at solving problems, right? They're excellent at solving problems, and they're usually very bad at finding problems because they don't have market power. Multinationals, governments, great at finding problems. We have all this market power, uh, but we're no good at solving them. And so rather than asking people like yourself to come to us with a solution, we should pitch out the problems that we have and say, these are all the problems we have, you know, can you come and solve them? Facebook did that with their servers. So they spent hundreds of millions of dollars incrementally improving their servers. And then they just said, let's open source everything. These are the problems we have. Within a few months, there was like three companies worth $60 million and a hundred and something odd improvements to it. Um, and we should do that. We've started that um, through two initiatives using Innovation and Science Australia, effectively running competitions, and another initiative called the BRI, which is the Business Research and Innovation Initiative, doing effectively the reverse pitch, modelled on what the uh, US did with the SBIR program. So we're really changing this dial in a big space, and we will be making more announcements in that space. But in terms of you specifically, let's just have a chat, and I'll see what I can do to help. All right, cool. Uh, see so how long have we got? 
15. Okay, so if anyone desperately needs to go, you, you may. Uh, Paul. Angie. Oh, sorry. We'll go there and then uh, next one there. Thanks, Ian. Uh, really refreshing. I've really enjoyed it all the talk this morning. We heard about people. I think that's a, that was a brilliant comment. It's a really interesting discussion. It's been my observation, I'm an author and consultant, Paul McCarthy, um, that both people and uh, capital are the keys to yeah. you know any kind of culture. And it's been my observation that in, in the finance sector, New York was built with other people's money and other people's people. Uh, you know, the, the capital came from London. Uh, and on the West Coast, the whole West Coast economy was built with East Coast money and East Coast people. Yep. Um, one of the most refreshing things and encouraging things about Australia is the presence of foreign capital. And Absolutely. those that have been around this business for a while, I think, to me, that's the number one signal that we're, you know, we're, we're in the world, we're, in, we're playing a world game now. So I wondered whether there were other initiatives to attract foreign capital particularly uh, specialist tech capital? Yeah. Well, the first point is we actually have to be pretty proactive about seeking it out. Um, you have so or haven't? We have to be. Okay. We haven't, you know, well, it depends what industry you're in. You know, like, like, mate, if we're in the mining industry or we're in um, some of our more traditional strengths, you haven't really struggled to attract foreign capital, let's let's be honest. Uh, and the resources of Austrade and other have been radically directed at our traditional strengths. And you can't blame them for that. That's, you know, where we were. But if we can direct that energy into this space, I think that we can really make that difference. I think the landing pads is kind of an example, planting a flag saying we want that capital coming. Uh, trade missions, radically changing those and sending so uh, in um, next month, we're sending a thousand businesses up to China. Um, and it's the first time that we've had a dedicated innovation stream to that. And a big part of that is attracting capital, practical thing the government can do. Um, other policies I'm open-minded to uh, in terms of very strong incentives, uh, but people need to be kind of specific about the proposals that they want, and some are kind of really out there. Um, but I, I, to be honest with you, I mean, the more that I think that we just get the story out there and tell people what we're doing um, and we provide the resources to do that, the better. Um, just after I got this job, I took a trade mission to Israel. Fifth, it was the largest trade mission we've ever sent uh, there. Uh, and it was all innovation and entrepreneurship. And I can't tell you the amount of deals that were done on that trip and how easy it was, but no one had ever showed up. No one had ever gone there and said, this is what we're doing. And from the government's perspective, that's a very clean, simple, easy thing for us to do and redirect that energy and, and time there. And like I said, physically planting flags where there's these sources of capital is a great way of doing it. Okay, cool. Thanks, Paul. Uh, let's pick up the pace. We'll try and get through three or four more. So quick questions, quick answers. I think this young lady here. <laughs> Everyone's a young lady. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughts today. Uh, I'm Gemma Parsons from the Strategy Group in the um, Global Lifestyle Hub of Bondi Junction. Um, we're uh, in an innovation consulting business. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about how the Australian government plans to build internally the culture and capabilities yeah. necessary to engage with and enable the innovation-led economy that you aspire to build. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely vital. Um, for us. And, and Malcolm likes to say that he wants the Australian government to be an exemplar of innovation. And I don't think we should think that's an easy thing. You know, it is a very hard thing to change and drive this culture through the public service. Um, but there are a number of things that we're doing. So, the, it, you know, it is quite remarkable in a political... Forget the real world and business. Think government and politics. The fact that in six months we've had 24 new policies in nine different government departments uh, formulated, consulted on out there in the process of implement, implementation is actually incredibly remarkable, all driving around innovation across all these different government departments. Like, that just never happens. And we did that through changing the machinery of government. 
And you need to have that political leadership from the top, and Malcolm drives it from the top. And if you didn't have that, it wouldn't happen. So we, when we came to these roles, we immediately established a task force that sat within Prime Minister and Cabinet, reported to the Prime Minister. So we had that authority, but Christopher chaired it, and I sat on it. Um, and then we had secretaries of the departments and representatives, experts in the field from all of them in the room. And when you physically get them in there and you say, the Prime Minister wants you guys to work together and do things differently, that matters and it helps. Uh, and then in terms of the implementation and driving this, uh, we actually have established a committee of cabinet, which in federal politics is very rare. So in state politics, you have lots of these committees of cabinets to do things. Federally, we have the expenditure review committee of cabinet, which is the budget committee the National Security Committee of Cabinet, the Infrastructure Committee, and now we have the Innovation Committee, which is incredible. And so it's chaired by the Prime Minister. I sit on that, Christopher, a few others, and that's all about driving this through government. And I've sat in the room. It's, it's Cabinet, so I can't you know, talk about the discussions, but I can say when there was this enormous inertia or delay or problems, the fact that you can in that room say, no, no, we're fixing this and getting it done, uh, and it actually happens, you need that machinery of government to do it. We've established the same task force in the public service, headed by Ian Watt, to do the same thing. The PM's initiated something which is, it's funny seeing how the public service changed their mentality in this space, but um, innovation prizes for the public service and how that makes them competitive with each other. And the second, I've been with like nine or ten secretaries of department and they'll be chatting and competing with each other. I got ten people in my department that got an innovation prize from the PM and they're actually changing the culture in that sense. One of the things that I did, which I, you know, was I announced on the day I got the job, could have been a horrible, you know, train wreck, but it turned out very successful, what we did with Seb, um, was holding uh, the policy hackathon. Um, and that was all about, it wasn't really about the policies, it was about the cultural change that we need to see. And that goes both ways. So adopting something from the private sector that works, putting the experts of the field in the public service, physically in the incubator with the public servant, saying to them, fix a problem. They're not saying tell us each other ideas because the two worlds don't always align. It's saying fix a problem together. That matters. I want to take this a lot further. I would love to see, let's see how this develops, um, effectively two-way secondments as well. So physically getting people out of the public service into incubators, accelerators, startups, big six, you know, GE, for example, wanted to do this, and vice versa, uh, with people from the private sector coming in to work on projects so we can blend these cultures. Very difficult challenge, but we are throwing everything we have at it. All right, okay, awesome. Couple more, one over here, uh, yep. Hello, Andrew Hankins from Optiva, all round nice guy. <laughs> this should be in politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to, there's been a lot of talk about risk culture and I really yep. agree with what you're saying. But I think like sometimes the government could lead in terms of risk culture. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we've shied away, like I think the NBM was a bit of a risk, maybe building submarines in Adelaide's a bit of a risk. And I feel like sometimes we're not taking those risks and then yep. we're saying, do you know what, we're not taking them, but you know what, you should. Yeah. Don't you feel like perhaps like the government should lead? Yeah. So the, P the PM talks about this all the time. And, and the, 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 the argument against it, right, the argument that public servants will put up is when you sit there is, oh, minister, that's very dangerous, and it will end up on the front page of the paper. Right? Inevitably it will. And this goes back to the original point that we're having about politicians who do something and don't do something. And so you have to have the political will to say, when I help a tech startup actually talk to vice chancellors, that's going to give me a bad news story in the Australian. Or, uh, when you support a, uh, you know, through these initiatives, uh, businesses which have a failure rate of 90%, 
and they fail, those will end up on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. As we saw in the US with Solandra when, the, um, when, when Obama did this, right? And so you have to have politicians who are brave enough to actually do these things to push through and ride against the media. And I would also argue to everyone in this room and anywhere I go, you need to push back against the media as well and actually say to the media, well, this is part of a changing culture. That doesn't happen overnight. doesn't happen because we announce one project or the PM holds one press conference. This is years of stuff that we're talking about and continually having this battle on the fight. The PM is completely up for it. Some people say it's completely insane. So are we going to see some bravery from the Turnbull government? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, 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 and the, the, you know, the great example of this is, is Malcolm saying, if these policies don't work, we will dump them. Now, that might seem like a completely normal thing in this room. Do you have any idea of the media storm that comes when a policy fails uh, and how governments are torn down from doing that? And the fact that we now have a prime minister. I've never heard a prime minister say that. I've never heard a politician say, I've created a policy that completely failed. We'll get rid of it. What politicians do is they walk into this room and they say, we are the smartest people, we have the best ideas, our political opponents have the worst ideas you've ever heard of, uh, we just announced this initiative, that's that you know, innovation thing done or education thing or health thing done, you're all sweet, shouldn't you all love us? And by the way, if the other guys get in power, you know, it's, it's Armageddon. It's crazy. And to actually have the PM say, well, if there's a good idea, we'll take it. If we can work together, we will. Um, if this doesn't work, I'll dump it. I'll improve it. I mean, you know, if politicians were prepared to talk like that more often, then I think we'll see that. And then if you do have leadership talking like that, then you might see the public service begin to move and help in that space as well. So I am really optimistic. We're six months into the job. Um, the fact that we've had, I mean, let, let's be realistic about this. Imagine the political conversation you and I were having eight months ago or nine months ago. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic. Okay, cool. Let's take uh, one more over there. Uh, Minister, one of the uh, more obvious challenges I imagine for government in supporting effective innovation is short-termism. We have maximum yeah. of three-year parliamentary terms federally, yeah. eh? and short-term thinking is the enemy of um, innovation, which requires a medium to long-term thought. Um, secondly, we see that so much of the political debate is about how much money in rather than measuring the outcomes. Yeah. And I think our friends across the Tasman have sought to move the conversation a little bit more yeah. to measuring outcomes rather than um, war on how much we spend. Yeah. And anyone that runs a business knows if you're focusing on maximising your expense line, generally you minimise your profit line. Yeah, absolutely. The two incredibly good points. I think John Key has done an incredible job at shifting that debate to outcomes, but that's taken him three terms in office. It wasn't only his first six months in office. It's taken three terms, um, but incredibly effective. How do we break out of this? Um, other than longer parliamentary terms, which I'd love, but you know, probably not going to happen anytime soon, um, it, there's a few things. The first thing is bipartisanship. So we're in a hyper-partisan political environment, and I am absolutely determined wherever possible that we carve innovation out as an area that we can have bipartisanship. Very hard to do in the media environment and the rest, but I do think we can effectively say, yes, this is something our country has to do. The economy's transitioning. There are challenges and opportunities. These are what they are. We agree on that. And then at that point, we can say, okay, we'll compete on the policy delivery. That will help ensure that we get out of that short-termism a little bit. Uh, then there are also really practical things that we can do. So you would have seen through establishing uh, Innovation and in Science Australia, 
bringing in experts in the field, giving them and handing off as much of this policy stuff to people who know what they're talking about and know what they're doing and getting it out of the hands of the government is really, really key. If you look at Israel, the office of the chief scientist, they get $400 million, no strings attached to do their job. That gets you out of that short-termism. We've also tasked Innovation and Science Australia to give us a 35-year plan. Um, and this shouldn't be butcher's papers and, you know, something that doesn't actually happen. But what are the big things that we need to do over 35 years? And if you can get bipartisan support for that, or the majority of that, then you can break out of that short-termism. Again, none of this is easy, but I do think that we can make a lot of progress in this space. And again, compare us to where we were eight months ago. I mean, it's, it's vastly different. I mean, if we can build enough public will in this space, it would be a very brave politician that came in and overturned it. But we're starting from a foundation where there's not political will and public support for this, you know, because we've had a very different economy and 25 years of uninterrupted economic growth. So a big challenge, part of the, the signs and the bus stoppers that you talked about before, is not so that people in this room think this is important, so that mainstream Australia, people sitting around the dinner table, think that this is important for their kids' future. If you get that point, it's a very brave politician that then turns it over, and, and that's part of our challenge. And it stops it being a fad. Okay, so I think we'll, we'll end there with, uh, you want one more? Well, I've got a quick fire round, so let's, oh yeah. Okay. Alex, make it quick. Oh, sorry, Kara. Yeah, I'll make it quick, don't worry. Hi, I'm Kara. <coughs> Thank you very much, both of you. Um, quite simply, in three years' time, which you said was the typical period to measure po political life, how will you know whether your innovation agenda has been successful? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I put this question to these, uh, the Minister of State in Massachusetts, who is my counterpart, Innovation Minister, because, you know, Boston and Massachusetts has a transitioning economy. And I said, how do you measure it? What does success look like? And I also put it to my UK counterpart this morning. Uh, and both of them effectively said, one sort of gave me, uh, you know, a broad brush sort of thing on culture, but the, the, um, the, uh, which is reasonable enough, but, but the, um, the, the Massachusetts, um, uh, Secretary of State turned around and said, I have no idea. Because this is a this is a new area, and and there are metrics out there, but they're kind of pretty bad. Some of them. There are obvious things in my mind, you know, moving the GDP dial, uh, the amount of exports in this space. So the service side of the economy is 70% of our domestic economy, 17% of exports. Clearly, if that moves, that works. The amount of people employed in this space, those are kind of key economic measures. But culturally, as I said, success to me is actually maybe not in three years' time, but in ten years' time, when that little um, Australian girl says, I want to be an entrepreneur and I can do it in this country and I can take on risk and I can take on the world, that is actually success. And you can't quantify that or measure that, but that is what it looks like because currently not enough, nowhere near enough people are her. And that's kind of, that's the point that I know we've done it. And, and I know the point that we've done it is when people stop looking to the government for innovation. You know, at the moment we're in the really early stage where people are kind of saying, well, what's the government doing to help innovation, which is important. You know, we've clearly got a role to play. But true innovation hubs globally don't have government at the heart of them. Um, and, you know, they have these vibrant, you know, private sector economies, this vibrant um, innovation ecosystems that exist and people in many cases achieve things despite the government, not because of it. So long term, that is what success looks like to me, is when you don't see a politician talking about innovation, you see some incredible, awesome scientist or innovator sitting on TV talking about it. That's awesome. All right. Well, let me finish with uh, I've got 10 quick questions. You can't think about <laughs> it's them. It's really dangerous. Yeah, this is dangerous. Uh, the journalist has left the room, so no one's okay. going to mention this. Oh, yeah, so great. You've just got to give me a quick answer, and then we'll, we'll finish yep. on this. So iPhone or Android? iPhone. 
I have two of them, which is really unhealthy. Yeah. You should never trust a person with two phones. Oh. <laughs> uh, McLaren or Tesla? Oh, McLaren. Really? <laughs> Wrong answer. Uh, <laughs> Trump or Clinton? Uh, neither, but Clinton, if you had to. <laughs> Python or Java? Uh, Python. Oh, okay, good. Uh, Uber or GoCatch? Uber. Sorry, boys. I know everyone gets yeah, yeah. you know Uber. <laughs> yeah, Ned might have something to say yeah. to you afterwards. Uh, Instagram or Snapchat? Snapchat. Really? Mm. Can we, can we Privately, not publicly. Okay, right, yeah, good. Yeah. Right, apparently people yeah, are on sure. it publicly. Uh, OSX versus Windows? Uh, Windows. Really? Uh, Rod versus Gillard? Uh, <laughs> I like Julia as a person. <laughs> okay. Uh, Turnbull against Abbott? Malcolm. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right, last one. Uh, double dissolution or not? Uh, probably not, to be honest. Right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Wyatt Roy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Awesome.